Greetings. Uh, my name is Tim, and I am a Christian minister. Uh, I serve in the Presbyterian Church USA, and I offer, for your humble consideration, this message upon the occasion of Pride Month on why I affirm the goodness and beauty of marriage within the LGBTQ community, and, and, um, and why I invite and challenge all of my fellow Christians to join me, and I believe to join the one we call Lord, Jesus, in this place of celebrating relationships that are built upon the foundation of unconditional love uh, promised to another. And so let's talk about marriage. Marriage, that blessed arrangement. Uh, any other Princess Bride fans out there? Anyway, when talking about the right of marriage being extended to the LGBTQ community, the argument against it, whether it's a religious argument or political civil argument that has undeniable religious underpinnings or foundation, is that biblical marriage is defined by God in the Bible as being between one man and one woman. That's, that's the traditional argument against um, the inclusion of the LGBTQ community in the right of marriage. However, not so fast, because defining biblical marriage is not that simple. Just because we assume that this is true, that this is what it says, doesn't mean that it's actually true. So yes, if we cherry pick out, selectively take out certain texts from certain books of the Bible, we can find this definition that supports our presuppositions about marriage and then we can pretend as though the rest of the Bible does not exist or does not apply. But the reality is that there are several marriage paradigms in the Bible, several definitions of biblical marriage, and some of them are awful. So my hope is that by pointing out what is in the entirety of the scriptures regarding marriage, it will encourage conversation and will facilitate each of you coming to your own understandings of what biblical marriage really is before basing your views on marriage in the present on that construct. All right, so here we go. Biblical marriage definition number one is that marriage is a business transaction with women sold as property or exchanged as commodities. That's, that's biblical marriage definition number one. So in the stories of the Hebrew patriarchs, these first few generations of the family of Abraham, we could read in the narratives of Genesis about Rachel and Leah, two sisters sold to Jacob in exchange for seven years of labor each. So he worked seven years for the rights to own the first sister, which, which was the sister that he didn't really want. Um, and so he then worked seven more years for the rights to own the second. Um, there are plenty of other stories in these Hebrew scriptures about sons having no choice in their marriage either because their parents arranged marriages for them for, uh, pol with political motivations. In the Hebrew laws, uh, we read numerous statutes that stipulate how these transactions for women ought to be conducted. 
So the 10th and final commandment of the 10 commandments says this, do not covet a neighbor's house, a neighbor's wife, a neighbor's slaves or oxen or donkeys or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. That's the 10th commandment. So yes, wives were in the same category as homes, animals, servants, slaves, and other assorted property. Another Hebrew law uh, detailed in Exodus 22 states that if a virgin was seduced by a man and she willingly consented to being seduced, then the woman was to be purchased from her father to be the wife of the seducer. A law from Deuteronomy 21 demanded that if an enemy family was killed in battle, but a woman from that family remained alive, she could be kept as a spoil of war, piece of property, won in war, and, and made to be the wife. And, and so we pause and we ask ourselves how, how comfortable we are with this definition of biblical marriage. How comfortable are we with biblical marriage as our guide for understanding marriage in the here and now? Would I accept this for my own daughters or for my own sons that I don't have? I just have daughters. Um, my children being my property to sell or exchange or pawns in some deal, uh, regardless of their wishes, would I accept that? Biblical marriage definition number two. This was, this was one of the really awful ones. Rape victims were forced to marry their attackers. So in one of the most appalling laws of all the Hebrew scriptures, uh, one which, thank God, has never cherry-picked out and enforced in our society is a law from Deuteronomy 22 that demands that if an, a virgin was unwillingly raped, she was to be purchased from her father by the man who raped her. This is, of course, tied to that first definition of women as property of fathers to be sold, but, but takes it that awful step further. The rape compromised the property value of his daughter, and therefore the perpetrator had to pay full price. How comfortable are we with biblical marriage being our guide for understanding marriage in here and now? Would we accept this definition of marriage for our daughters and those of us who are parents of daughters, say, over my dead body? Biblical marriage definition number three, levered marriage. So levered marriage law, which is found in Deuteronomy 25, demands that if a man dies and he has a brother who's still alive, the widow is not allowed to marry someone outside of her husband's family. She must marry her late husband's brother. Because she had become the property of the now deceased man, his property is not to leave the family unless there's no other man to whom she might belong. And there's a story in Genesis 38 about a man named Anon who refused to marry and impregnate his brother's widow, and he was killed for his disobedience. I wonder if you, uh, as you listen, are a widow or, or, or um, related to or love someone who is a widow. Can we imagine this being legally imposed upon women even if the brother was already married, even if he didn't love this widow, are, are we comfortable with this definition of biblical marriage as our guide for how we understand marriage today? This is what, this is one way the Bible says, this is what marriage is. Would we, would we should we accept this? Biblical marriage definition number four. Are we haven't fun yet. Polygamy. 
So in the stories of the heralded patriarchs, Father Abraham and his sons, polygamy was celebrated and practiced. In Genesis 16, we read that Sarah, the wife of Abraham, gave her handmaiden Hagar to Abraham as another wife. Abraham also had another wife later named Keturah, with whom he had several children. Abraham and Sarah's son Isaac was not apparently into the whole polygamy thing, and he married only Rebekah. But Isaac's son Jacob had at least a dozen children by four wives, not just those sisters, Rachel and Leah, that I mentioned earlier that he purchased by his years of labor, but, but also um, their handmaidens, Bilhah and Zilpah, whom he also took on as wives. And, and Jacob is heralded as the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Yay, polygamy. So the practice of polygamy was, was condoned and protected by the Hebrew law. In Exodus 21, there's a law ensuring that the the existing wives continue to be offered food, clothing, and conjugal rights when a new wife is added to the family. The law of Deuteronomy 21 protects against favoritism with the inheritance among the multiple wives of a single man. And so these laws tell us that the only objections to polygamy um, as, a, as an acceptable paradigm for marriage was when a man showed favoritism or was living beyond his means and unable to provide for all of his wives. So King Solomon, another heralded figure of the Hebrew tradition, had more than the means to support his 700 wives. And, and so all that was legal and affirmed as accepted practice. So are we comfortable with biblical marriage being our guide for the way that we understand marriage would we accept this definition of polygamy for our daughters and our granddaughters? Biblical definition of marriage number five. Segregationist marriages were encouraged and demanded as a means of preserving the homogeneity of bloodlines and political circumstances and realities. So according to the laws of Deuteronomy 7, the people of Israel were instructed to make no covenants with foreigners and to not intermarry with them. And then even within the, the 12 tribes of Israel uh, itself, there was segregationist marriage. In Numbers 36, there's a story about how Moses mandates that the daughters of Zelophehad, a descendant of the tribe of Manasseh, could only marry within the tribe of Joseph and not within any of the other 10 tribes. And so marriage was used as a tool for maintaining racial or tribal homogeneity, preventing desegregation or integration. And it was used as a tool for maintaining strategic political alliances and realities. This is also what the Bible says that marriage is. So are we comfortable with this definition of biblical marriage to be our guide for understanding marriage? Would we accept this for our kids? Biblical marriage definition number six, the coming together of related persons in incestuous relationships. So according to the Hebrew uh, narratives of Genesis, Abraham married his half-sister and Abraham's brother married his niece. Abraham and Sarah 
didn't want Isaac to marry a, a Canaanite woman, a foreigner in, in this foreign land in which they were living. And so they sent their servant back to their homeland to find a wife for Isaac from among their relatives. The narrative of, of Exodus tells us that a man named Amran married his aunt Jochebed, and they became parents of Moses and Aaron. The laws of Leviticus draw the line at parents and children getting married. That's not allowed. But beyond that, this is what the Bible also says marriage is. So are we comfortable with biblical marriage being our measure and our guide for how we understand marriage today? Would we accept this? Biblical marriage definition, paradigm number seven. Marriage is to be avoided by those who seek the greatest level of piety through celibacy. So to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wrote, those who marry will experience distress in this life. From now on, let even those who have wives be as though they had none. The unmarried man or woman is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, but the married man or woman is anxious about how to please the spouse and their interests are divided. He who marries does well and he who refrains from marriage will do better. This is what the Bible says about marriage. This part of the Bible says it is a distraction and it is to be avoided and that even those who are married ought to act as if they are not. Sorry, Blair. <laughs> and so we ask again, are we comfortable with biblical marriage as our guide? Do we accept this? All right. There's seven different paradigms for understanding biblical marriage. They come right out of the Bible itself. When we search the Bible for marriage, this is what we find. These paradigms, stories, laws that reveal how marriage was used as a tool for the benefit of some while, and to the detriment of others. Marriage in the Bible was uh, most often a human construct that sought to leverage relationship dynamics for the sake of personal gain at the expense of another. Business and political transactions, the protection of valuable child-rearing property, um, the polygamy, these are all Biblical marriage. And so maybe the Bible doesn't say what we think it does about marriage. Maybe sometimes it does indeed say that that relationship is between one man and one woman. But it also says that those pairings of men and women exist because of rape, property transaction, political arrangement. So maybe these biblical marriages are a far cry from what God actually intends for human relationships. When we go back to the very beginning of the Bible, the, the story of the creation of the first human beings, we can read the narrative about what God actually intends for human beings in relationship. And it is a relationship that is not about property or politics or piety, where the relationship or lack thereof benefits one party, but is, is instead a relationship of mutuality in which both people benefit. So in this creation story of Genesis 2, we overhear God's recognition that it was not good for the first human being to be alone. And that 
none of the other creatures that God created were a worthy companion and partner to that human being. And we know that we all have times where we are hungry, fatigued, ill, or injured. And we need the physical help or aid of another creature. And we know that there are times when we are physically okay, but emotionally, we are lonely, scared, sad, uncertain, insecure, anxious, and, and we need that emotional presence and help and support of another creature. Now, those of us who love pets, we love our, our dog Dobby, but, but we know that in these times when we really need, an animal can be of some comfort, but they cannot be the same kind of help to us as another human being. So the creator saw this. And another human being was created as an equal partner and a helpmate so that they might be for each other what no other creature could be. So that word in Hebrew, helpmate, it means one who aids or helps another. So it's not, it's not the Hebrew word for servant or slave. And so this relationship that's established as a divine will for all human beings is not about someone being subservient to the first and that subservient person being commissioned to do whatever the first demands as helpful. And the focus of the helping or the aiding action is on the person, helping the person, not, not, not on helping accomplish any task. And so this relationship is not about one helping the other to do something, whether that's helping in the garden or with the flocks or, or helping to procreate, but it's about someone who will help and aid that person. It's not the word Hebrew word for spouse or for wife. And so this is, this is not a word that implies any differentiation or difference in status, rather implies standing equally eye to eye. It's a word that describes a relationship of love, care, help, and mutuality. That's what it means to be in a relationship with a helpmate and to be equally a helpmate unto them. And so we read in this story of God's will for all people in creation, the divine will of growing and maturing beyond the care of one's parents, and then clinging to another human being as helpmates. Clinging to the one who will help and aid you, and the one whom you will help and aid. This is not about a divine will for gender roles or procreation, but about the divine will of mutual help and aid, the companionship, partnership, and love. This ideal relationship, the relationship in accordance with God's actual will, is not described as marriage. It is described as clinging. It is not a transaction, a legal transaction but it is a mutual covenant. And this is why the word used to describe the clinging to within these relationships of mutuality is not only used to describe in the scriptures, the relationship between a man and a woman clinging to each other. This divine will of clinging to another is also used in the scriptures to describe 
Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi clinging to one another. It's used to describe the people of Judah and their king clinging to one another and to describe both individual people and the nation of Israel clinging to God. These are the kinds of interpersonal relationships that are the will of God for humanity. This is why Jesus said pretty much nothing about marriage. We know that his disciples were married, and with the understanding that they were living by the Hebrew laws prior to meeting Jesus, we assume that their marriages were some flavor of biblical marriage, one of these paradigms that we've already named. But Jesus was not married in accordance with any of those biblical paradigms of marriage. His interest was not in property, political power, or piousness. And so if that's what marriage was, he wasn't interested. But Jesus was 100% interested in relationships with family, friend, stranger, and enemy that all were built on the principle of love offered freely to the other help and aid offered to the other. And Jesus' teachings and actions embodied this divine will for relationships built upon mutuality and love and care and help. So did Jesus have one particular helpmate to whom he clung and who clung to him? Did he ever have a more intimate relationship with any of them? We don't, we don't know. There are plenty of theories out there about Jesus and Mary and his friends, but those are just theories. What we do know is that he was not in any kind of Hebrew biblical marriage, and that he didn't really have anything to say about marriage. It, it wasn't his focus. He wasn't trying to help more people to become married in any of these legalistic ways. Relationships of clinging, commitment, love, help, and mutuality were his focus. He was trying to get more people into those kinds of relationships. The only thing that Jesus said about spouses was not about gender, procreation, any of these laws around marriage paradigms, but about the injustice of divorces that were allowed by the Hebrew law. So he quoted this Genesis 2 text about clinging, and as he does, he never says the words marriage, husband, or wife, and speaking against unjust divorces that were allowable by the laws. And his emphasis was on how harmful it was to women circumstantially when they were cast aside and divorced by selfish and hard-hearted men. And so, said Jesus, let not anyone separate the two who have been joined together legally in accordance with one of these ways. His, his focus was, was, was not ever what was legal, but on what was loving and kind and just. So many of us, myself included, have found this divine intention fulfilled in a very meaningful relationship of love and mutual clinging between a man and a woman. Blair is the, the most amazing gift I will ever know uh, and is an incredible helping. However, the ability to fulfill that divine intention of loving and mutual clinging, being in a, a life-giving relationship with a helpmate, is not exclusive to relationships of certain genders and certain sexualities. Some find the divine will of a helpmate in a mutually beneficial and life-giving relationship with a person of the opposite sex. Some with a person of the same sex. Some with a close friend or a group of friends. Some with a sibling or cousin. Some cling to a congregation as a congregation clings to that person. 
and the bottom line is not whether or not these relationships are a legal marriage by one of these biblical definitions, but are they Christian in that they are about the unconditional offering and promise of love to one another? Wherever there is mutual concern, mutual care, mutual action for the sake of the other offered freely and with love, that is the divine will for human relationships on display. Wherever these relationships exist, Jesus is Lord, because the new command that he gave, that we love one another, is, in, is heeded and honored and followed. Jesus is not honored by most definitions of biblical marriage, because they are not built on the self-sacrifice and other-centric commitment to love. Most of the definitions of biblical marriage that we've considered here are selfish, humiliating, or hurtful. And so Jesus gave a new command that was and is to rule all of our human relationships, that we love one another as he loved first, unconditionally, seeking the well-being of the other regardless of merit and without the expectation of anything in return. All of our relationships are to be built upon this foundation. And then within the context of all of our relationships, for those who choose to commit to be helpmates to one another with an intentionally shared life, what we have come to understand as marriage is a freely chosen covenant to love. As Americans, and more importantly, as Christians, this relationship is not something forced upon us in any way outside of our control. It is a covenant into which we enter freely of our own accord. This whole life partnership and commitment is made by the exchange of vows to love between two individuals with God and family and friends as witnesses. A marriage becomes a marriage, not by an act or a sanction of the law, but by the vow and promise to cling, commit, help, aid, and love for the sake of the other. So my 20th century marriage, 21st century marriage, to the most amazing woman in the world is not a biblical marriage. I didn't have to pay for her. I didn't have to earn her hand by seven years of labor. Our marriage isn't an arrangement that financially or politically benefited any of our parents. I don't have a brother that died, thus requiring me to step in and take her on as my wife. But our marriage is Christian. It honors Christ as Lord as our relationship is built on mutual and loving care and concern for one another. As we cling to one another. And it's covenantal, as we made vows as equal partners in the joint venture of our life together. To those who assume that marriage within the LGBTQ community is not biblical, it's important to point out that most of yours aren't either. In fact, I hope they're not. Your marriages are good and godly, not by some ancient Hebrew or Greek law, and not by some contemporary American law either, but by your vows to cling, to help, and to love in that way that Christ commanded that we love one another. Laws make for civil unions, 
like the laws of the Hebrew scriptures, they can be revealed as human structures that are created, regulated, and denied others for various human reasons. But love makes for marriage covenants. And no one can regulate or deny anyone else's commitment to cling to, to help, to aid, to love another. If we think that being a Christian, someone who follows Jesus, is about demanding conformity to laws that were not instituted by him, and in doing so, we are actually violating the laws of love and justice and inclusion that Jesus actually did institute, then we are very much missing the point. And the church missed this point for a very long time. It wasn't so long ago that American Christians with a misplaced commitment to biblical marriage instituted and held up laws against interracial marriage. It was a realization of how these laws honored other laws, but didn't honor the true heart of Christianity that those laws were abolished. And in a similar way, the laws against LGBTQ marriages have started to crumble. But there's a lot of change that still needs to happen at the heart level to move us from antagonism to love, from legalism and Bible worship to true Christianity and the worship of Christ. And so I invite all Christians to live by the law that Jesus did actually institute, the law that we love one another. By their marriage vows offered to one another with love, married members of the LGBTQ community demonstrate their fidelity to the law of Christ. By our love and support for their marriages, we demonstrate our Christian faith. It is those who seek to judge, label, and deny them their divinely willed helpmate with motives other than love who are unchristian, and so choose to be Christian. Choose the way of love. God is love, and love is love is love is love. Love freely pledged to one another is just about the most Christian thing that anyone could ever do. If there are any members of the LGBTQ community out there who need someone to referee, as you make your vows to one another, reach out, please. I would be honored to celebrate that good work of God with you and with your helpmate. Peace to all, and happy Pride Month.